But there is no space for shame. David says, I have sinned, and immediately he is forgiven. He didn't need to posture himself. He didn't need to be dragging his knees up steps like Martin Luther did to try to atone for some sort of sin. And sometimes we think we must atone and live in that shame for our sins to be forgiven. Maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. God doesn't operate like that. We've just witnessed a man realize he has not only broken half of the Ten Commandments, but has also spent the last year justifying his actions. Looks like he's still justifying just like Saul, just in a different way. And still, God forgives immediately. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. It's good to be up here. It's been a year, and in that year, I'm just excited to share about my story and my experience with you. Thank you for the brief moments. As a child, people around me would tell me that I was shameless. In Spanish, the term is sin vergüenza. <laughs> Mom would tell it to me all the time. I, you know, anybody that could speak Spanish, that was a term that was connected to me. And uh, in a sense, I was. I got into mischief, and when caught, I would tend not to seem sorry for what I did, rather opting for a renewed effort in trying to be a better person. Yet I would find myself in mischief again. Interestingly enough, in those periods between mischief, I would would try to do good. I remember in the property next to my neighbors, there was a bush, big enough that you can kind of crawl inside and have three middle-aged Sorry, not middle-aged, middle school-aged kids <laughs> kind of hanging in there. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably one of me now. But the, it just seemed like a giant cave. And I'd go in there, and I'd be like, whoa, the theme song for this little cave is There is a Quiet Place. And I would sing it by myself as the cars would drive by. Uh, but yeah, I'd find myself in mischief again. I felt like someone who had the best intentions and still ended up in the principal's office. One time in seventh grade, I sprayed a girl with Lysol disinfectant spray and chemically burned her cornea. Looking back at it, I felt guilt, but no shame. You see, I knew what I did was wrong, but I created loopholes to justify my actions. You see, this girl, she would lose her voice for nine months out of the time. And half the time we thought she was faking it. This girl, she caught me logging into Facebook. And because of that, I was suspended. This girl was the person that just, she was the epitome of right, just, doing whatever is true. And it just rubbed me the wrong way. I justified my actions. And justifying actions could be a, a reason to not feel shame. 
but both justifying and shame are not ideas in the kingdom of God. Let me show you by comparing two fictional housemate applications. Dear God, bless the words that'll come from my mouth. May, they be, may I be a conduit for you, and may my imperfect experience be a, a message to at least one person in this room. Amen. I'm going to imagine that most of you in the audience have had to find a roommate or a housemate. Maybe we're too old to share a room with another human being. Hopefully, most of us have had the chance of living with a friend. Some of us have had to look for a stranger. Well, let's imagine a situation where I'm looking for a roommate, a housemate. Two people have applied, and I've done a little sleuthing to see more about them. I mean, why wouldn't I? You bet I'm going to stalk someone online while they're going to be living in the same house as me. Otherwise, I'm, ch I'm switching those locks. So I've tabulated a pros and cons list of these two people that I've got. Let's look at person number one. Roommate option one, pros, obedient, respectful, polite. Seems pretty good, right? Cons, presumptuous, impatient, disobedient. That's me. I think we'll jive together. Let's move on. How about option number two? Pros, faithful, compassionate, humble, courageous. Yeah, that's pretty good. Cons, self-serving, judgmental, adulterer, murderer. Yikes. We're going with roommate number one, right? Housemate number one. We're still locking the doors, though. So help me as I write a letter to this prospective housemate. Hi. Saul, thank you for applying to be a housemate. Sorry, I type really slow. My name is Gus Moretta. I have reviewed your housemate application. Due to the actions committed in the past, what I've found on your social media and what I've heard, I'm hesitant to bring you on as a housemate. Sorry, sorry, I can't spell mate. But what did help your case was that the other guy was simply not a good, adequate, mm, I don't think that's the right word to use, was simply not a reasonable fit for the household. Attached are house guidelines, ah, good, Google knew, that I am sure you will be able to follow Gus Moretta. We'll send it to Saul at Israel.com. Let's talk about the Saul guy. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, Samuel, the prophet, says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to annoy, anoint you, <laughs> not annoy, anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, everybody. Do you remember the Amalekites? Some of you were here last week. 
when Heather Day spoke about the Amalekites. They're a neighboring tribe that has been warring with Israel for generations. And those of you that were here last week would have remembered the story of Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms as the Israelites are fighting. Anytime the, arm, anytime the arms went down, the fighting went bad. When the arms were up, the fighting was amazing. These are the same Amalekites. That same message in Deuteronomy 25:19 that had told Israel to wipe out a people was still happening to this day generations later. And so Saul did as he was told. Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, verse 7, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the rest and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. I love seeing the story play out in my head. You have Saul thinking he's done right by God. And I think there are many times we think we're doing right by God. We get a message to do something, we read in the scriptures, and we play into our own situation. We justify this. We're religious people. We typically are ones that will follow whatever standard is set up by our church community or our readings of the Bible. And yet we can easily find ourselves justifying our actions and aligning our deeds not with the purpose of God. So Saul is confused, and when a ticked-off, Samuel comes to him. And in verse 14, Samuel says, What is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice for the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Have you found yourself ignoring that nagging conscience? bending to the will of others, falling to some sort of pressure, maybe not even peer pressure, pressure from work, even though that's not what God had planned in your life? I sure have. I still do. Saul tries to make excuses for not following the command, and that sends Samuel off into an impassioned response to crying Saul's action. And you can see this is where Saul's alibi comes in and tries to steal the spotlight as he doubles down. In verse 19, several verses later, Saul says, "Why did sorry, Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I did all this for God. So it's okay if I slide it a little bit differently. And Samuel responds by saying, I didn't put this on the screen, so just listen to me. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Wow, harsh, harsh. Because I would have done the same thing as Saul. I would have spared some of those sheep. I would have saved some of that cattle and presented some of that to the Lord as a, as a, as a tithe, as an offering. I, I would have done that. And this man loses the kingdom. Man, 
We're too alike. Then finally, Saul says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Finally, Saul realizes he sinned and states it. But what he does here is that, one, he blames it on the fear of man, and two, asks Samuel for forgiveness, not God. It almost seems as if Saul was dependent on Samuel for leadership, and it pained him to even think of being separated from Samuel. Dare I say he was more scared of separation from Samuel than from the Lord. That's why I relate to Saul, because so many times when I feel that urging of the Holy Spirit, that call from God to move away from someone, to call someone, to, to do anything of his purpose, or to make a relationship right, I fear for that relationship more than my relationship with God. How real is that? You know what? Maybe I don't want this guy as my housemate. We're too similar. I should try the other guy, who by mere convenience happens to be God's next pick for the king of Israel. Let's try David out. Let's just hope he doesn't murder me. So, let's bring up the profile on David again. He's option two. Here are the good things, right? Faithful, compassionate, humble, courageous. Cons. Self-serving, judgmental, adulterer, murderer. Let's try this out. But before we dive a little bit into David's story, let's talk about justifying our actions. Carol Tavris, a doctor in social psychology, writes in a book, in a book titled, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, that children learn to justify their aggressive actions early. They hit a younger sibling who starts to cry and immediately claim, but he started it, he deserved it. It is sobering to realize that the same mechanism underlies the behavior of gangs who bully weaker children, employers who mistreat workers, lovers who abuse each other, police officers who continue to be a suspect who has surrendered, soldiers who commit atrocities against civilians. In all these cases, a vicious cycle is created, aggression begets Self-justification, which begets more aggression. You're probably listening to this quote and thinking, I'm not any of these people. And I'm here to tell you, yeah, you're probably not. But you're still justifying any action and decision in your life. Here's some examples. I just graduated from nursing school, and I deserve a new car. Never mind the debt. I cheated on the test, but only because it's a pointless class. I won't have anything to do with my career. I only screamed back and lost my temper because you wouldn't give me space. I was rude to her in public because I don't like her, and I'm going to be real. <laughs> I was rude to the server because our service was, because the server's service was terrible. I only sprayed her with Lysol because she was annoying. Okay, no, that one's, that one's aggressive. That one's aggressive. Let's move on to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, Wow, I would have preferred the winter. David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent, to messengers, sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying her from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. If the author of First and Second Samuel has allowed David to rise to glory with only subtle hints of his darker side, the author lays aside subtlety in form of blatant disclosure. Polson, a biblical scholar from Harvard, states in his book, David and Deuteronomist, that readers only now find out the kind of calculating, self-serving person David has always been. Chapters 11 and 12 will make that painfully and dreadfully clear. David had a good life. We can agree. We've, we've heard the great stories about his life. He had won the favor of many people. He had conquered. He had the glitz, the glamour, and this time a chance to stay at home while his army went out to battle. He'd done it all. By the way, there was nothing wrong for David to stay in Jerusalem. But his innocence ends at verse 1. From his rooftop advantage, David sees a woman bathing. She's beautiful. He wants her. He sends someone to inquire about her. He's asking about when, not if or whether. Scripture reveals no hesitation on David's part when he learned that she was married. Then verse happens. Then, sorry, then verse 4 happens, and we see Bathsheba raped. More than nine months later, the prophet Nathan shows up to David's house to tell him a story. There were two men in a certain town, a rich guy, he had everything, and a poor guy with one lamb that was like his child. The rich man has a guest, and instead of going into his massive amounts of cattle, sheep, anything he can want, he chooses the poor man's sheep, takes it, and feeds it to his guest. That story made David angry. Would have made me, me angry, too. Any one of us should have been angry. After all, there's nothing more amazing than righteous anger, right? How many times have you been upset about a story and not even realized that you fit into that story like a round peg in a round hole? You're just that same person. That's been me. Well, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Man, I'd be scared of you, Nathan, saying that. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Oh, my goodness. Not a lot of justification in there. In chapter 11, we saw who David really was. In chapter 12, David sees himself for who he really is. But wait, David's going to live? He literally had a man killed after raping his wife. Polson may be on to something when he notes that the merits or demerits of someone delivered by God are more often than not irrelevant to the deliverance itself. Plainly stated... The good things that you do or the bad things you do are irrelevant to God's deliverance, mercy, and forgiveness because you are not your actions when you come to God. You're a child of God, a new creation, forgiven, 
made whole, filled with a purpose. You are worth it. David immediately stated, I have sinned. No alibi was needed. No excuse. No blaming the people. No blaming the soldiers. David took it upon himself to say that. And I love what happened next because not even another verse is needed for Nathan's response. Nathan says, immediately, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. You are forgiven. The reason I love that is because there is no space for shame in here. Have you noticed that? Oh, I guess the verse is not on there. But there is no space for shame. David says, I have sinned, and immediately he is forgiven. He didn't need to posture himself. He didn't need to be dragging his knees up steps like Martin Luther did to try to atone for some sort of sin. And sometimes we think we must atone and live in that shame for our sins to be forgiven. Maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. God doesn't operate like that. We've just witnessed a man realize he has not only broken half of the Ten Commandments, but has also spent the last year justifying his actions. Looks like he's still justifying just like Saul, just in a different way. And still, God forgives immediately. Maybe we can relate to David more than we thought. Might be a better housemate then. Let me share about shame and guilt. Why? (laughs) Because I didn't know the difference until several years ago maybe several months ago, to be honest. Shame is me telling myself that I am bad. It's me saying I am the sin that I've committed, whereas guilt is me saying I did something bad. Those are different, right? Guilt, I did something bad. Shame is me embodying that action. Brene Brown, in her TED Talk on shame, stated, shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorder. We have to understand how to combat shame in this culture. How? With empathy. Brene Brown continues by saying, empathy is the antidote to shame. If we put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Shame needs secrecy. Shame needs silence, and shame needs judgment. She says that if you put shame in a petri dish with empathy, it cannot survive. So what is the antidote to secrecy and silence? The antidote is vulnerability. With vulnerability and empathy, shame can be combated. And if we can separate shame and guilt and understand that being wrong does not necessitate the added need for the feeling of shame, we can view the gospel of Jesus in the best possible light, the light that David saw, a redemptive light. Last year, January, I wish the exact date, I I wish I knew the exact date, but in January, I began to feel intense shame. It felt like all the shame that I had subconsciously been building up over the years had led to the realization that I didn't love myself. I didn't even respect myself. There I was kneeling on the bedroom of my floor, sobbing because I realized that I had put up a facade for years that I had not truly accepted Christ's declaration over my life as a son to him. And out of that stark realization came the truth. 
I began to claim the phrase, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. All the thoughts of inadequacy, of incompetence, of my sinfulness kept creeping up while I was saying these words. And I kept saying, Jesus, I am who you say I am. And as someone who connects through music, yet barely has any verse memorized, trust me, I don't even know the entirety of Amazing Grace. I thought of the line of the beautiful classic hymn from Hillsong in 2019. There was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the fire standing next to me. I knew nothing else. I just kept repeating that. No, I wasn't standing up for Jesus like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I sure saw Jesus in this fire with me. I finally understood the days onward that I was no longer a slave to the sin that I had been forgiven for long time before. Praxis community, this appeal is to those of you that have accepted Jesus in, the, in your life, as many of you have. In your most deepest self, have you understood that by accepting Jesus, you're no longer a slave? Romans 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that, the, so that the body might be ruled by sin, sorry, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been free from sin. Those of you that have been baptized, those of you that have accepted verbally in your minds the calling of Jesus Christ to follow him have been set free and continue to do so as you come to the cross. As Christians, our guilt is taken care of when we are made right with Jesus. That's justification. We've heard that many times. It's a quick, decisive, and, simp and as simple as merely telling God I'm wrong. The process of applying the truth of what happened between you and God can, no can be longer and quite messy. Shame can haunt you long after you've dealt with the guilt. We can deal with our shame by reminding ourselves of how God has dealt with our guilt, objectively forgiven at the cross. We have a new identity with Christ, but shame refuses to let us acknowledge that new identity, effectively trying its best to have the last word. Some of us also have shame because of what has been done to us, not because of what has been done. And we carry the shame of a guilt we should have never had to bear. Are you one of those? Do you have the shame of because of what you've done or because of what has been done to you? The feeling of shame of actions caused by someone else is so intense that many victims avoid what happened talking to them. Nancy Rain, in her book, After Silence, Rape and My Journey, notes that even in psychotherapeutic situations, victims of rape often avoid talking about what happened to them. Despite more than two decades of change in social attitude, she still found herself having difficult time not feeling ashamed when others reacted with embarrassment or discomfort. And that feeling of shame silenced her. You know, shame silences because it encloses the entire self. You feel like a cocoon sometimes. And in situations like these, I want to emphasize, the shame you have has no sin connected to it. 
And you might understand the logic of this, but not feel it. And it's okay because shame is illogical. It's a tool in the devil's tool belt. And help with counseling, with therapy, with the community could bring clarity to that shame that you hold. And I hope some of you that need that deliverance are able to find a therapist. I know mine's helped me in my journey as I have moved forward in life. More recently, as the pandemic was in its early stages, I found myself making late night trips to whoever was open past 11 p.m. And I've got the list, it's pretty small. We've got Alberto's, never been there. Just don't like Mexican food. You've got Domino's, you've got Raising Cane's, and you had In-N-Out. And I would go on these, I would go, I'd get in my car after studying, felt, feeling hungry, just feeling this urge to eat. And I would get the food, already feeling the shame of this trip. I, I would sometimes drive to Redlands or drive farther away just so that no one in the drive-thru would see me and recognize my car. And I'd sometimes lie to Madeline the next day when she would tell me how, like, you know, how's your night? How were you? Not telling her that I had secretly had been enjoying a slice of pizza. And in this, in this experience of gluttony, I, ex I, I realized that it only happened when I was alone. I mean, if a friend of mine wanted to go get food, I was fine. I mean, let's go. I'll eat in moderation. I'll get one Taco Bell burrito. Oh, I didn't mention Taco Bell. I'm sorry, Daniel. I'll I'm there. But when it was by myself, I literally would have intense amount of shame for simply going out. It was a therapist that helped me see through that and helped me find clarity about what my connection with food was. There's other areas that I just won't share about shame in my past. Here I am preaching about vulnerability and empathy and wanting a community to experience that with me, and yet I don't feel fully ready to share about the shame that I've ex experienced in my life. And that's hard because, I mean, it'd be nice if someone was preaching to you and saying, let's be open, I'm gonna be the first to be open. And here I am telling you, I'm not there yet. I'm seeking the help, but I'm not fully ready to be vulnerable in all aspects of my life. And so I'm, ask, I'm gonna ask you to do something in your life that I might not be ready to fully do. I'm gonna ask you in the community to be vulnerable. Many of you experience you, you experience shame, you experience yourself justifying where your actions are. We've got two separate situations here. And in both of them, we find that they hurt our community. We find that we, as a community, we only stop at the barrier that has been set up. And if we want to be 
closer, if we want to be richer in terms of the conversations and in terms of the connections we have with each other, it's time to be vulnerable. One of the songs that I've that tears me up these days that I've been listening to says, you are more than the shame you were recklessly given. Jesus runs after the broken ones. Weeping with those who weep, he crowns them with purity and years of shame shatter in Jesus' name. He is here and he has time to take what's wrong and make it right. The God from the God of David is the same God now. The God of Abraham, the God who was in the garden when Adam and Eve were embarrassed and was like, why are you embarrassed? Why are you feeling shame? Is the same God for us now. The second song that was sung that you all beautifully sang in the audience talked, mentioned seeking after God's heart, or something along those lines. Bad with lyrics. David was a man after God's own heart. You hear that said twice in the Bible. 1 Samuel 13, 14, and Acts 13, 22, when Paul is recounting Israel's history. And after reading the life of David, I was frustrated with those verses. I went from thinking David was pretty cool to, I, I don't ever want to relate to this guy. This guy's a bad guy. How could David be a man after God's own heart when he, was, when he raped and murdered? It was only when I realized that those words were God's testimony about him. They weren't Samuel's. It was God saying that David was after his own heart. You know, as you saying that, <laughs> I can only think that God's saying that about you. As you sang those same lyrics, God is saying this man, this woman, this person is after my own heart. God is running after you, weeping with you, and desiring that you live without shame and with him. God, we desire to be vulnerable. We desire to continue seeking you in this messy life that we live in in the weirdness of it all, we know that you provide clarity. We know you provide peace and a pathway forward. And God, thank you so much. You have time. You have time to make it right. Time to be with us on this journey. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly. 
as you take theory and make it into practice.